This is the Coalition of Christ-Exalting Churches, a network of churches in Northern California that are working together to advance the gospel by strengthening one another and planting new churches. Go to coalitioncec.org to find out more information about how you can help. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. My name is Jess Arns, and this is the Coalition of Christ Exalting Churches. Uh, today's podcast, we will feature Dr. John Street. He did a workshop for us back in November at, um, at a Community Bible Church in Vallejo, and his subject was on the topic of biblical reconciliation. Really, what we're trying to do is train church leaders in dealing with uh, issues in their churches um, that will help strengthen them, because ultimately, our goal is is to be able to plant churches together. But in order for us to work together well, we have to be able to resolve conflict and deal with some pretty serious issues in the church. All those uh, conflicts are what hinder us from really going forward with church planting. And so one of the things that we're doing here is just trying to equip church leadership uh, for uh, just their task, their role really in shepherding the flock. So we did that back in November. Today's podcast is going to be the first session. We'll do a total of four sessions from that uh, workshop. Uh, And today's topic is going to be getting to the heart of conflict. And that is with Dr. John Street, who is the president of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. He also is the chairman of the Biblical Counseling Department at the Masters University and Seminary. He's a worldwide uh, speaker and traveler. (laughs) He goes all over the place and does this kind of training And uh, so he is a great guy to teach us. Um, He also planted a church back in Ohio back in the 90s. And so he, everything that he has done really embodies what we want to do as a coalition. So without any further ado, uh, let's turn it over to Dr. Street. Good to see you here. And I'm really excited about the, the launch of this cooperative effort among churches. Very, very excited about that. Very excited to see and to hear in the future what God can do through this. And the Redwood illustration is a good illustration of this. It's as if each one of the churches are like a tree, and um, that church is not nearly as strong by itself as as it is with the interconnectedness of that root system. So that's really key. One of the things that you're going to find... And I think you know this because you're a church leader. You probably would not be here if you were not an elder or some kind of leader in your church or maybe a future elder or you're thinking about pastoral ministry. You're going to find that a good deal of pastoral ministry deals with resolving conflicts among people. That's a good deal of it. And very little training is given to this especially in seminaries. Very little training is given on this. And there's a lot of questions as exactly, what do I do? How do, how do I deal with that? And there are very several different dimensions to this, and we want to identify three of them today, and we're going to work on three of them. And this is indeed a workshop. 
All right. Um, if you have your notes in front of you, you'll probably want to follow along. The first one has to do with getting at heart issues. This is such a critical thing, not just the behavior of people, but getting at heart issues. And the second thing has to do with a thorough and biblical understanding of genuine repentance. We'll see why that is so critical in relationship to conflict and conflict resolution. But the third area has to do with a good and thorough biblical understanding of forgiveness. Because the church today has been so influenced by secular psychology, it's been brought into the church through Christian psychology today, and we don't think from a biblical standpoint anymore, we really basically think, especially in regards to forgiveness from a very secular point of view. And we have a tendency to read into biblical language contemporary meaning. This is what we call in hermeneutics a semantic anachronism. We relate meanings of words into biblical meanings and biblical words when we read the Bible. And so we make the Bible say something that it never intended ever to say. Now, the reason why this is so important is that every conflict within the church presents the pastor with a great teaching opportunity. Because every conflict within the church is a reminder of how much Christ is needed. That's so critical for us to understand. The source of all conflict begins in the heart. The Bible's very clear about this. It doesn't have to do with adversarial personalities. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that. There's a sense in which every single one of us have an adversarial personality because we have a depraved nature. All right? There's no such thing in the Bible as adversarial personalities that doesn't exist. In fact, take your Bible just for a moment. We're going to take a look real quickly at Philippians chapter 4. We can see this in the early church, a good example in verse 2. Here Paul is saying, and it's kind of interesting that in a book, New Testament epistle that's characterized by the issue of joy... In fact, probably Joyce mentioned more often in the book of Philippians than in any other New Testament book. He mentions conflict. And in Philippians 4 and verse 2, it says, I urge Erodia and I urge Syndicate to live in harmony in the Lord. That's the way the New American Standard translates that. The word there actually in the Greek language has the idea of to have the same mind in the Lord, to have the same mind in the Lord. There was a conflict between these two women that was a part of the early church. We're not privy privy to exactly what that conflict is. We can only guess about it from other references here in the book of Philippians. But he says, I urge Eurodia and I urge syndicate to live in harmony in the Lord or have the same mind in the Lord. Indeed, he says, verse 3, true companion, I ask you also to help those women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, apparently these two women were very active in the church. They were very active in helping Paul in terms of his personal ministry. They were very active and well-known among the churches there in Asia Minor because of their contributions. But yet, at the same time, there was a conflict that occurred between them. And 
I think we've got to get out of our secular thinking that the goal in Christian ministry is to resolve conflict. We don't find that to be a biblical goal. Our goal is not to resolve conflict. That's not our ultimate goal. Our goal is to bring biblical reconciliation. Our goal ultimately is not peacemaking. That's a misnomer as well. We're not there just to bring peace. Peacemaking is one step in a broader, listen to me, peacemaking is one step in a broader reconciliation process. Jesus makes that very, very clear. Peacemaking is, take your Bible and go back to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. You know this, but let's look at it carefully. Matthew 5. And um, he says in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, so peacemaking is something that we do, but ultimately it's not the ultimate goal. Why do I say that? Because later on he talks about the fact that, well, let's drop down in verse 21. You have heard uh, that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. You leave your offering there before the altar and go and first be reconciled. See, peacemaking is one step in the broader reconciliation process. You be reconciled to your brother and then come and present um, your offering. So this is really key. Now, why do I say... And I'm in my introduction here, but grab your Bible again. Let's go over to James chapter 4. And James picks up on this. James here is, is writing as the half-brother of Jesus. In James 4, he says in verse 1, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And I think, actually, the majority of people in our churches today would say the main reason there is conflicts and quarrels among us is because uh, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. You know that, all right? Or I am a sanguine and I'm married to a caloric. That's the reason why we are, and we, we have problems with that. And it's strange that James says, or Peter here, or excuse me, James here says that's not the case. He says is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. Wage war in your members. In other words, this is not about adversarial personalities. It's not about that. Never was about that. In fact, personality theory goes way back to Greek philosophy. Hippocrates, who is known for the Hippocratic Oath. Some of you maybe have medical background. Medical doctors have to swear based upon the Hippocratic Oath. Hippocrates believed um, that um, 
our personality was a result of an overabundance of one of four bodily humors. All right, so if you had too much blood, you were one personality. If you had too much um, phlegm, you were another personality. If you had too much black bile, you were another personality. If you had too much yellow bile, you were another personality. And he said, I, I can illustrate this for you. If you are the type of person who have too much blood, then, and you're kind of a very energetic, active type of a personality, always involved in things, he said he developed bloodletting. He said, I can just drain some of your blood and it changes your whole personality. <laughs> All right? You're a different person. So proof positive that your personality is rooted in your blood. Or if you um, are kind of a moody person, subject to your feelings a lot, and those are constantly vacillating, and you're very cautious and coil in social relationships, that you have too much black bile. And so he would give his um, patients... Uh, very, very powerful herbal laxatives. After you've been sitting on the john for several days, everything looks up. You're a different person. It's a whole different personality. All right? Now, we look at that and we say, that's crazy. And of course, the English Latinized terms of them, blood would be sanguine, right? Uh, phlegm would be phlegmatic. Latinized term of this. Um, yellow bile would be caloric. Black bile would be melancholia in the Latinized form of those. But yet all of our basic personality tests, the Taylor-Johnson temperament analysis test, the Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory, the, all of our tests are based upon that same theory. It's based that we're, we're based upon the personalities. Well, James says, that's not true. The reason why there's conflicts among us is not because I'm a caloric and I'm married to a phlegmatic. That's not the reason why we have conflicts. That, that's not it. It's not deep inside of us. In fact, from a biblical perspective, personality is fluid. It changes. It's not fixed. I say this to my students. I'm not the same personality I was when I graduated from high school. And you ought to be happy about that. All right? I'm not the same person. All right? I'm a different person. That's called, in theology, we call that progressive sanctification. All right? That's what we call it. We call it progressive sanctification. I'm not the same person. He says in verse 1, Is not the source your pleasures that wage war on your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. Now, I don't believe that the Christians were going around murdering each other, literally. I think he's using murder the same way his half-brother, Jesus, used it in the Sermon on the Mount. Where the heart of a hater and the heart of a murderer is the same heart. All right? It's just that the heart of a murderer has acted it out and the heart of a hater has not. But it's the same heart. If you hate in your heart, you're as good as a murderer. No difference between the two on God's side. It's just that one person has acted it out and the other one hasn't. You know, you, you come down, I know you experience this here in this 
area too, but you come down to LA area and you travel down the 405 in the LA area and that'll test your sanctification. <laughs> and you go to some of the auto shops there in our area and they have, and you walk in and they've got these little things that you can mount on the dashboard of your car if you get in really heavy traffic and you're trying to get there really quick. And, uh, and there's a lot of cars in front of you. There's little things with little buttons that you mount on the dashboard of your car. And, and one of them, one of the little buttons says missile. The other one says machine gun. The other one says, um, hand grenade. And you can figuratively launch missiles and hand grenades at the cars in front of you. <laughs> You can figuratively blow them all up, all right? Well, the heart of a hater and the heart of a murderer is the same one. It's just that one has acted it out and the other one hasn't. No difference between the two. It goes back to your heart. It goes back to what's really going on in your heart. That's the real key issue. And this is why this is so important for us when we're dealing with conflict. He says in verse 2 here, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, that is, ask with proper motives. And you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So what you think is going to bring you happiness in life is now in conflict with what somebody else thinks is going to bring them happiness in life, and there's a major conflict that goes on there. That's deeply rooted in the heart. It's amazing to me, in conflict situations I get involved in with churches all around the country, it's amazing to me how serious heart lusts and heart idols are hidden under a veneer of doctrinal differences. It's, it comes off as, oh, well, I don't believe like that person. That person has a false belief system. But you really dig down underneath that, and there is a deep dislike for that other person. There's a deep dislike. That's a problem. And that goes on in churches all the time. So I want to take a look at this. This is really critical for us to understand. It's critical for us to know how can we get at this especially as leaders in the church when conflicts occur like we saw. And I want to look at this problem of sin as it affects worship of the heart because this is a critical area, what your heart worships. And, of course, the Bible is very clear that the location of this is the heart of man. The location of this is the heart of man. But we have a problem, even at this point. Again, semantic anachronism takes over here. Um, Because we begin to read into the Bible's understanding of the word heart. Every time we read our Bible and we come upon the word heart, we read into it our European-American understanding of the heart. When in reality, that's not at all what the Bible is saying. Um, what is the European-American understanding of the heart? Well, it usually has to do with lots of feelings. We have the expression in English, I love you with my whole heart. We say on Valentine's Day, what do you see? February 14th, you see stores 
with hearts and you've got Cupid shooting arrows through hearts and you've got boxes of candy in the shapes of hearts, those kind of things going on. That's a very European-American understanding of heart. That's not the biblical understanding of heart at all. The, the heart in the Bible is not the foundation of your feelings, emotions, and romance. It's not it. What is it? Well, grab your Bible. Let's take a look at this. I wish I had time to go to several different passages, but I don't. Go over to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. You can see this in Genesis 6, 5. Here, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, the word saw there, the Lord saw, is in the Hebrew terms in the imperfect. In other words, he continually saw. It's not something that he noticed once. He continually saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And notice how the heart is described here. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. It, God is not observing that man had wrong emotions. Wasn't observing that. He's describing the heart as thoughts and intentionality. It has to do with what grows out of our thinking. That's the biblical understanding of the heart. How we think, how we intend, how we purpose in our heart is the idea. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 22, 34 through 40, when the Pharisees confront him, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, he's not making a list of several different categories of the inside of man. He's making a cumulative list of everything as a part of the inside. It's a cumulative statement because um, spirit and soul is the same thing in two different areas. The soul of man is that which is the immaterial part of man in relationship to the body. The spirit is the immaterial part of man out of relationship with the body. It's the same entity. So when he's talking about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's a cumulative statement. It's not a statement of different categories of the inner man. That's not the issue here. It's about the total inner man. And then love your neighbor as yourself, he says. All of that comes out of the heart. Having the right purpose, the right intentionality, the right goals. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 talks about, and in fact in the verses following that, uh, that what our eyes look at, what our voice says, where our feet takes our body, is all an outgrowth of our heart. Jesus talks about this in Mark 7. Let's go over to Mark 7. Mark 7 is a good example of this. We'll pick up in verse 20. And Jesus says um, here, and he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man, For from within, out of the heart of men, and notice first thing on the list, proceed what? 
evil thoughts, right? Evil thoughts. Fornications that come from evil thoughts. That's come from evil thoughts. Murders come from evil thoughts. Adulteries come from evil thoughts. Deeds of coveting come from evil thoughts. Wickedness come from evil thoughts. All these things come from evil thoughts. It's out of the heart of man that that evil comes from. How we think within our hearts is the key here. And there are numerous examples of this throughout Scripture. So the heart is the location of the problem. When there's conflict between brothers or a brother and sister in Christ or between groups of people in the church, this is first and foremost a heart issue. It is a heart issue. This is really critical. In fact, if I were to put it into a graph, and I think you've got this in your chart as well, the Bible identifies the heart as being essentially the control center of life. It sums up the entire inner man. And it involves our thoughts, it involves our will, our conscience, our motives, our desires. If we had more time, we'd break that down with all those scripture references that are listed there. We don't have that time. But it involves your thoughts, your will, your conscience, your motives, your desires. But the key thing is that it comes from your deep inner thinking. Uh, there at the master's university, I used to teach undergrad classes. And when I did, one of the classes that I taught was uh, intro to psychology. And I always ask the students, when a person's brain dead, do they stop thinking? And most of the class would say, well, yes, they stop thinking. And then I'm very quick to tell them that you're, you're no different than any secular student out there in the world. You're no different than them. When a brain person is brain dead, they stop thinking. No, they don't. No, they don't. Second Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says, whether I'm at home or I'm absent from the body, I make it my goal to please him. Paul says, I still have thoughts and intentionality even without a body. When a person is brain dead, they don't stop thinking. Maybe their soul has left their body and become spirit now, but they still have intentionality within their spirit. They still have thoughts. And the primary problem is not the body. The primary problem with man is what's going on in the intangible, immaterial part of his heart, which man still possesses in a metaphorical sense after he's dead. He still has a heart, the heart of who he is, because it says it speaks to how he thinks. He thinks. So as long as the then the spirit of man is connected to the body, which now that intangible part of man is called soul, then what happens with the brain affects the soul, your ability to be able to think. So if you if you brain injured, it still affects soul, but also what happens to the soul affects the brain. I can give you discouraging news and you're, you can become depressed for the next several days and there's going to be certain 
hormones that are released in your body that will drag you deeper and deeper and deeper into depression. And here, there's nothing organically wrong with you. But nevertheless, the bad news is just information now has caused the brain to release in its neural pathways and the body to release certain hormones that cause you to feel depressed because of that bad news. Information changes us organically as much as, much as SSRIs do. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are antidepressants. Information does that. I can, I can illustrate that for you. Um, I'm going to change your body chemistry right now. If you come to my house there in Santa Clarita, California, and you walk in the backyard, I purposely had several years ago a very specially high-end orange tree planted in our backyard. It's supposed to be the best oranges in the world. And boy, that tree produces. And it's pretty soon going to produce some really nice oranges. Big plump, juicy things, and I start peeling those things back, and I take those little pieces of oranges, and you pop those in your mouth. They are sweet as can be. You're salivating. <laughs> I haven't even showed you an orange. You can't even smell smell it, but you're starting to salivate. Why? I've just changed you organically. I've now chemicals are now released in your body just with the description of something. That's just information. All right? We change people when we talk. There's chemical changes that go on. So this is, this is really big for us. The Bible defines that there is the outer man that we can see. We can see outer man, people, but we can't really see what's going on in the inner man. We can't see that. Only God sees that. He's the only one who can identify what's really going on in the inner man. And when the inner man is focused on self and what it wants, it will always, in terms of behavior and externally, produce bad fruit. Bad attitudes, bad words, bad actions... When it is primarily self-focused, it will always produce bad fruit. It will always do that. When the heart is focused upon Christ in everything that it wants to do, then it's going to produce good fruit. It's going to produce righteous fruit. Good behaviors, good attitudes, good words. So now that external behavior becomes a key to what's really going on in the heart as well. Now man can disguise that. Proverbs talks about that. But it is a key. So how do we function? We function, the Bible says, from our heart. Um... As James chapter 4 says, it's out of the heart that certain pleasures get established, certain desires, certain lusts, which doesn't have to be sexual lust. It could be anything that you desire a lot or covet a lot. 
anything potentially desirable can become a deep-laid lust of the heart. Anything can be. Which can produce bad fruit. Take your Bible, let's go over just for a moment to Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 5. You can see it there on the screen. We'll just use this as one example of this. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 5. Here it says, A plan in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. Notice how, again, the Bible refers to the heart as planning. The Hebrew term there, you could translate it purpose, or you could translate it intention, or you could translate it really legitimately a deep desire within the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding is able to draw it out. So it's hidden. You can't see those things. Now that is radically different than our American European view of the heart. That's why on Valentine's Day, if you tell your sweetheart that you love her, she probably ought to smack you. Because from a biblical standpoint, that only means that you have really good intentions towards her and good thoughts about her. All right? The Bible has a whole different um, metaphorical organ of the body when it refers to emotions and romance. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 talks about the bowels of compassion. Anybody that's been constipated for a long time knows how emotional that is. <laughs> All right? If you want to talk about emotions, so if you're really going to be biblical next Valentine's Day, you should be able to tell your sweetheart, I love you with all my bowels. That's what you should be saying. I told my wife, I want to start a Christian greeting card company <laughs> that has bowels on the front and Cupid shooting arrows through bowels. And she said, she doesn't think it's going to go anywhere, but at least it would be biblical. All right? At least it would be biblical. I love you with all my bowels. There you are. Now we're talking about emotions. Right. No, but the heart has to do with how you think, how you plan, how you purpose, what you intend. That's the idea. And the Bible says that the occupation of the heart is that of worship. Every heart worships. Every heart worships. Even the most adamant atheist in our world today has a worshiping heart. They worship prestige. They may worship money. They may worship a certain ideology. They may worship a person or a group of people. Whatever. Every heart worships something. The heart can't help but worship. That is the occupation of the heart. And there are numerous examples throughout Scripture that illustrate this. The heart can worship possessions and peace and popularity and prestige and play and power and pleasure and people and protection and physical health. All right, I'm a pastor. I have to alliterate, okay? And any one of those things, it can worship, and, and more, that's not an exhaustive list. The heart can worship all of those things. 
any of those things. So the question is, in the midst of a conflict, what is that person's heart truly worshiping? That's critical, especially if you're going to be a mediator to conflict. What is that person's heart really worshiping? I worship everybody agreeing with me. (laughs) And I want everybody to agree with me. I may worship popularity. I want people to really like me. Now you understand that most illegitimate desires start out as legitimate desires. That can be well established from from the Bible. Most illegitimate desires start out as legitimate desires. That's the way they start off. So the Bible says when our heart begins to worship, whatever rises to the top, whatever becomes the reigning desire of my heart, whatever that is now becomes my idol. That's the idol. That's what I bow down to every day. And there are numerous examples of this throughout Scripture as well, but let's turn to one of them. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And notice how Paul addresses the idols of the people there at Corinth in their heart, and he uses Israel's wandering in the wilderness as an example of this. And he talks about how Israel wandered in the wilderness and the same things it got caught up in. And we go, drop down to verse 6. He says, now these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. That's really critical terminology there. Because it's one thing to have a desire in your heart, but it's another thing to crave after it. Okay? It's one thing to have a desire in your heart. It's another thing to crave after it. When you start craving after it, then it becomes an idolatrous desire. And he says immediately in verse 7, do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and stood up to play. Now notice, he's highlighting the fact Yes, they did create a golden calf, but he's not even highlighting that so much. He's highlighting the fact that what they really wanted in creating the golden calf was much deeper than just worshiping Yahweh in a false way through the golden calf. They thought this golden calf was going to bring them party time. We're now away from our Egyptian captors and now we're here in the wilderness to party. We want to eat, we want to drink, we want to play. That's what we want to do. And this became a deep, deep craving in their heart. And in addition to that, verse 8 says, nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. And by the way, another thousand fell fell the next day. 
nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then he comes back in verse 14 and says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. All right, what was, where were they idolizing? Eating, drinking, playing, sex. Wait, wait a minute. That characterizes our entire culture. That's, that's, that's the way everybody lives around us. That's even the way a lot of people who claim to be Christians live. Eating, drinking, playing, sex. Idolatry. This, this is what they live for. This is why they get up every morning. This is the first thing on their mind. I want to fulfill those desires. Deep laid cravings, idolatrous cravings in the heart. And God's very clear. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. God's very clear of that. How do we know when something's become an idol in a person's heart or even in our own heart? How do we know that? Let's identify some things here. First of all, wanting or desiring something that God clearly does not want or desire. Wanting or desiring something that clearly God does not want or desire. I want that woman. But she's not your wife. I don't care. I want that woman. It may be a secret want deep down inside, but I want her more than anything else. I think that's going to bring me happiness. I think that's going to bring me joy. That's going to give me the fulfillment that I think that I need. I must have her. Wait a minute. She's not your wife. She's somebody else's wife. Or maybe she's single. Whatever the case may be. She's not your wife. Anything that God doesn't want or desire... And yet you desire it becomes an idol. That's pretty obvious. That's pretty straightforward. But it's much deeper than that because you understand this. The depraved heart is very calculating and it's very clever. Okay? The depraved heart is very calculating and it's very clever. And we are easily, let me say this. Man, I cannot tell you over the past 40 years how many times I've said this in counseling. We think we know our own hearts. But we don't. God knows our hearts. Our hearts deceive us. For example, wanting something that God wants or desires, but wanting it so much that one becomes ungodly to get it or ungodly if they don't. It's like the Christian parents who raised their young daughter or young son, now they're teenagers, and their son or daughter is walking away from the faith. 
Now, it's very legitimate for want for them to want their son or their daughter to come to Christ. Very legitimate desire, right? How do we know when that has become an idolatrous desire? When that desire starts off as a very legitimate desire, but all of a sudden now it is a reigning desire in that person's life. A reigning desire. And and it the, how we know it is because behaviorally things start to change. It's the first thing they think about in the morning when they get up. It's the last thing they think about before they go to bed. It controls all of their moods, all of their actions. When all of a sudden they don't see their son or daughter responding to the gospel or responding to the Bible the way that they think that they should, then sometimes they can withdraw and become moody and non-communicative. Or maybe they swing the other direction and they become angry, hateful, mean, vindictive towards them because they're not getting what they really want. And it started off as a very legitimate desire, but it became easily a controlling desire in their life. I want this more than anything else. That's what they crave. Or how many times have I had a a woman say to me in counseling, all I want is for my husband to love me. Is there anything so wrong about that? No, no, that's a good thing. God even wants that. I can take you several scriptures where God says, husbands, love your wives. But how do you know when that desire has now become a ruling desire in her life? All right. You know it because when she doesn't get the love that she thinks she really deserves, she withdraws. She doesn't communicate anymore. She becomes extremely moody. Or she may react the other way and become hostile, angry, vindictive towards him, verbal. Or I've had husbands say to me, you know, all I want is for my wife to respect me. Is that so wrong? No, that's not wrong at all. When, is it, when does it become an idolatrous desire in his heart? Because when he doesn't receive the respect that he thinks he deserves from her, he becomes angry, hateful, mean, vindictive. He may even get physical with her. Or he withdraws, becomes moody, refuses to communicate. No longer... Now that desire is ruling everything in his life. It's the first thing he thinks about when he gets up in the morning. It's the last thing he thinks about before he goes to bed at night. It consumes him in his heart, in his thinking. Wanting something that God wants or desires, but wanting it so much that you become ungodly to get her ungodly if you don't. Hmm. Or listen to this. How do I know when something... This is the calculating cleverness of the heart. How do we know when it's become an idol? Well, being controlled by expectations and becoming ungodly in thought, word, or deed when that expectation is not realized. Expectations are seedbeds for idols. Expectations are seedbeds to idols. I have certain expectations in life. Those of you that are pastors, you can get expectations like that. I want people to adore my sermons. 
I want them to walk out after a Sunday morning and say, whoa, that is unbelievable. And (laughs) And it doesn't happen. And now I start thinking evil thoughts about the congregation. (laughs) They don't appreciate good preaching. There's something seriously wrong. Those people. I work so hard all week and I lay my heart on the altar and they just walk away like, well, that was nice, Pastor. That was really nice. Nice! Nice! What is nice? Expectations are seedbeds to idols. Seedbeds. I talk about this with my seminary guys, you know? They're there in seminary all day long, working really hard, parsing their Hebrew participles all day long, and they're thinking, boy, you know, my wife really appreciates all the hard work I do. She's home right now fixing my favorite meal. She's probably got a steak on the grill, mashed potatoes and gravy, my favorite vegetable. And he gets home, walks in the door. He doesn't smell anything cooking. He smells dirty diapers. That's all he smells. And all of a sudden, evil farts thoughts start coming into his head. What has that woman been doing all day long? She should respect me. There ought to be a nice meal laid right out there in front of me, and why is that not? And now he's upset and he's angry all night. Where's dinner, sweetheart? Oh, there's some cereal in the cupboard. Cereal! (laughs) Expectations are seed beds to idols. What do you expect? What people expect? What they think? Or perceiving a right and following through with ungodly thoughts, words, and action to try to get it. When that right is denied, that becomes an idol too. As Americans, we're big on rights. We have a bill of rights. We love rights. I have a right to be treated with respect. I have a right to be treated with honor. I have a right to, you fill in the blank, whatever it may be. I have a right. Really? Where did you get that right from? I mean, if I truly, listen, if I truly understand my Bible, I have one right, and that's to burn in hell. That's the only right I have. That's the only right I have. But by the grace of Jesus Christ, right? So where do I get all this concocted stuff? I have a right. I have a right. I have a right. I have a right. What? I have a right for what? That's when those rights become idolatrous. And I become hateful, mean, angry when I don't get them. Or I withdraw and become moody. Some of you heard the shooting at Saugus, right? High school. The girl, the one girl that died lives four doors down the street from us. We know them. Father and mother's Christian. Her name was Gracie Muehlberger. She had just been at our house a few nights before on 
Halloween. Coming, getting candy, knock on the door. A few days later, she's dead. Another girl right around the corner, Gracie's good friend, Addison, Addison Kogel. Shot twice, once through the torso. The other one, she survived. Praise God. What's the motive behind that kind of thing? A couple of things, complicating things going on there. That guy, number one, his father had died a year before. He had found his father after having a terrible heart attack. He was the one in the family to find him, so he was very depressed for a long period of time. My guess, I don't know for sure, he was probably on antidepressants and statistical uh, secular statistics say that if you're on SSRIs and antidepressants, you're six times more likely to kill yourself or hurt somebody else. Six times more likely. And the day before his birthday, he did he did that shooting on his birthday. The day before his birthday, his girlfriend broke up with him. You see how deeply rooted this right thing is in a person's heart? I have a right to have that girl as my girlfriend. I have a right to have such and such a type of life. And if I don't get it, I'm going to do hateful, mean, angry things. I'm going to do it. It's kind of marvelous. Gracie's father put up a GoFundMe page to help pay for her funeral. He set the goal at $1,000. In two days, $92,000 came in. $92,000. Ah, amazing. And I think there's still money still coming in on that. But I'm sure he'd trade every bit of that and more to get his daughter back. Over what? This young man said, I have a right, and if I don't get what I really think the right is, then I'm just going to take it out on other people around me. What scares me is that our schools are full of this. They're full of it. The marvel is not that it happened. The marvel is, why doesn't it happen at more? I mean, you've got decades of teaching self-love and self-esteem which builds up this notion of rights. That's it. Or what about this? Believing in something, a standard or rule that is not of God that leads to ungodly practices. We can see this, Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus confronts the Pharisees. The Pharisees actually confront Jesus and say, why do your, your disciples eat without washing their hands? And Jesus turns around and says, why do you nullify the law of God? By saying that this is uh, dedicated to the Lord and you don't give what is needed to your parents. In other words, you set up man-made laws, man-made rules that are that trump the real law of God. And we have a tendency to do that. We set up man-made rules and man-made laws. And if we don't, if people don't meet those man-made rules and man-made laws, then we get angry. Or thinking or having a mindset that is against the truth of God's word that leads to ungodliness in thoughts, words, and actions. 
When we're getting at idols, whatever that person's heart is saying, I must have or not have, whatever that is, fill in the blank. It's their ruling desires, their functional gods, their controlling inner cravings that become their idolatrous desires. I must have this more than anything else. That's what is ruling them. Now we're looking for regenerated hearts. We're not looking to rehabilitate relationships. We're not looking to just solve a conflict. We're looking to bring about true reconciliation. That's where the relationship between the two parties that were in conflict is actually better than it was prior to the conflict. That's reconciliation. That's biblical reconciliation. But in our world today, there's the gospel of rehabilitation that basically says whatever goes on in this life is determinative. That's represented by the sun up here. That's determinative. And you've got somebody who has, in a sense, a dysfunctional family. That's the way the world would describe it. So there's a lot of strife and anger and emotional problems that are part of the fruit. The Bible refers to our lives like a, like a tree that produces fruit. So there's depression, emotional problems, anger that's going on, phobias, uh, poor self-esteem, the way the world would define it in this particular case. All of that is very superficial. So the world would say, what's really going on deep underneath and deeply buried subconscious is that their heart is passive, empty, wounded, needy, and broken. All right? It's a very pitiful view of man. So what's the answer to this particular well, the psychotherapist meets needs, offers unconditional acceptance, reparents so as, so as to be able to know God as Father. So now Jesus himself is redefined. Jesus now becomes the healer, the filler. He's the meter of needs, of love and self-esteem. Jesus becomes the cosmic psychotherapist. All right? So Jesus now is redefined. So that man still has a passive, but now it's a full, healed, satisfied, whole heart. And as a result of that, they feel love, they feel good about themselves, they're happy, they have a healthy, functional lifestyle. That's the gospel of rehabilitation. And that is everywhere. That is everywhere. We're not trying to rehabilitate people. We're not trying to do that. We're looking for genuine transformation of the heart that's different. So what are we talking about? We're talking about a complete renewing of the mind, a complete renewing of the heart. And the Bible describes this as a war. It is a battle when this happens. Just helping people see what's going on in their heart is a battle. So much so that the gospel regeneration says this, that... The situation is not determinative. It just represents the heat in that person's life. And the, the person may live in an unloving, sinful family. I don't like to use the world's definition of dysfunctional family. There is a sense in which because of sin, every family is dysfunctional. So they still manifest depression, strife and anger, emotional problems and fears. And what the Bible would really call high self-esteem, not low self-esteem, so at the real root of this, then, is the Bible would define their heart as sinful, calculating, selfish, greedy, depraved, 
full of self-love. That's the reason why they're so miserable. Things aren't matching up to the way that they should. Full of self-love. So Jesus comes and provides atonement for that kind of heart. He identifies the idols, wants and desires and cravings that need repentance. And he calls us to repentance. And then brings about a heart transformation. So that now, when you take that sinful, calculating, selfish, greedy, depraved heart that's full of self-love to the cross, in the shadow of the cross, the heart is genuinely regenerated so that the heart now loves God first, is at peace, is guilt-free, is secure, loves others before self is the idea, and then what is manifested ultimately in the fruit of that person's life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness, self-control, by the way, all of those are characteristics of love. There's only one fruit of the Spirit, and that's always love. The others are characteristics of love. There's no, no such thing as fruits of the Spirit. Plural. So, that's what the gospel of regeneration is supposed to do. And then we as counselors have this, that someday... Christ is going to return and make everything right. Who has that in their counseling system? Nobody does. We do as Christians do. So what what can we say about this? We need to pray daily. We need to ask ourselves self-examination of the heart is critical to counseling and becoming Christ-like. Eight questions. What are my goals? What are my expectations? What are my intentions? Getting at these hard issues. What do I become anxious over or fearful over? That reveals, that's in, in a sense... A, a love, if you're able to, sometimes they say it like this, if you're able to identify on one, it's like two sides of a coin, one side of the coin, what a person loves the most, you can also identify what they fear the most. Two sides of the same coin, all right? If, if I, for example, am incredibly fearful of standing up in front of people and doing a lecture or doing a speech, What is it, flip the coin over, what is it that I love a lot? I love people's admiration, I love, and I'm afraid that they may not think very, if you're able to identify what a person loves the most, you turn it over, you can also identify what they fear the most. Um, What makes me happy? What motivates me? What would I like possibly more than anything else in my life? This is getting at hard issues. In what situation do I respond in anger? What perceived rights have been denied me? What biblical standard or principle permits that thought, word, or actions? You need to write down how that particular idol or lust is worshipped in thought, word, and deed. Acknowledge what it is and confess it as a sin of adultery, idolatry. Ask forgiveness from God and whoever is a part of that worship process. Study God's character to examine how your view of God is so skewed at this particular point, be ready to learn how to replace the idol and lust of worship with the worship of God. Do an in-depth study on the character of God and the attributes of God that are directly involved in this area of change. All of that is key. That's what we're after. Getting at heart issues. Now, we've just 
broken the surface of this thing. We're going to start getting underneath the surface of this in our next session when it comes to the issue of repentance. So let's take a break at this particular time. Jess, it's yours. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Coalition of Christ Exalting Churches. For more information about upcoming workshops or how to support us, go to coalitioncec.org.